Amen. Well, you may have noticed our songs focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and what He's done for us in the Gospel. Because that Gospel truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again, that He paid the penalty in my place, and that when I trust in Him as Savior, God gives me His righteousness, that I stand before God's throne forgiven, cleansed, and dressed in God's righteousness. So that's what gives us confidence. So we sang about that in Arise, My Soul, Arise. And we sang about that in all of our songs today, really. Christ, our hope in life and death. And then finally, in Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. Because it's, it's Jesus' forgiveness through His death and resurrection that matters. That's our surety before God's throne. Now we bring that up because David begins to talk in this psalm about being cast off being abandoned, being torn down like a wall. And so it raises the question in our minds, will God ever turn His back on us? Will He abandon us? Now, on the one hand, we certainly might feel like David feels in this psalm, that that God has abandoned us. Oh, where are you, Lord? And, And we'll talk about how we respond when we feel that way. Now, for David and the people of Israel, there was the the, the real potential that God would actually turn his back on them. It was a part of his covenant with them in the Mosaic Covenant. Not that God would ultimately abandon them, but that they would experience periods of God's anger. Because they had sinned, because they had done wrong, they would experience God's wrath. And that that would occur in a variety of ways. Maybe a big defeat in battle. They would lose. Maybe a nation would come in and take them captive. Maybe some kind of disease would go through their camp. So there actually were periods in Israel's history where, in a sense, God, in His displeasure, would sort of turn their back. Not abandon them entirely. God is incredibly faithful to Israel. But, but sort of turn His back on them and they would experience His wrath. And I think that's what David has experienced here in this psalm and what he's talking about. But we need to remember as we study this, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, God will never turn His back on you. You will never experience God's wrath. Jesus took that for you. And so we read and study this in a slightly different context than David. And that's important to remember. So as we think about this, as we study this together, we're not thinking so much about God turning His back on us in His hot wrath and displeasure. We're going to think about those times that we might feel like that has happened. Because there are times like that. Maybe you have faced a time like that. Maybe even you're going through a season like that right now. And I want to assure you, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God has not turned His back on you. He has not turned His wrath on you. And yet you may feel as if He has. Sometimes our plans go awry and we wonder where God is. Maybe you're even trying to do a really good thing and it's just not working. Something that you've worked hard on falls apart. Someone you love turns on you. Maybe you feel broken because you're having trouble conquering your sin seems like everything you touch falls apart and you feel weak and defenseless. Maybe you feel that God is displeased with you. You've sinned again. In fact, the same sin that you told God you would never do again. God must be far away from you, right? No. You may feel that God is far away, but He is near. 
He has drawn us near to Him through the blood of His Son. And if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that will never change. So how do we respond in those times when we feel broken and abandoned? We renew our confidence in God. We renew our confidence in God. He has not changed. His promises hasn't moved. He hasn't gone anywhere. And so we turn to Him and we renew our understanding of His promises. We renew our confidence in who He is and what He's done. Now, notice what has happened for David here in Psalm 60. We read the title of the psalm, and it gives us a few clues to the context. There, David says, it's to the chief musicians, so this song was written for worship. It's set to the lily of the testimony. Oh yes, that tune. Well, we don't, we don't know that tune. We don't know exactly how it goes and so forth. That's lost to us at this point. Uh, but it was, of course, set to music. It's a miktam. That term has come up in the last four or five psalms that we've studied. It has to do with the word wisdom, and so this is related to skillful living or wise living. And David just confirms that with a very unique phrase in the psalms. He actually says this one is for teaching. It, that might be the only place in the psalms that that phrase comes up. I'm trying to remember for sure. There might be one other place. It's very unique. David wanted to be sure the readers understood that this psalm was for teaching. We're to learn something today. And so, friend, you're here today listening to Psalm 60 because God has something specific for you to learn. This is for teaching. David then gives us the context. He says, When he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Now we read that and we think, well, that sounds actually like a positive thing, right? Like Joab was one of Dave's gen- or David's generals. And so uh, I know David well, so I just call him Dave sometimes. <laughs> Who knows where this stuff comes from? Anyway, (laughs) Joab was one of David's generals, right? And so David had sent Joab off to fight against the Edomites, and Joab had an incredible victory. So that kind of leaves us wondering, well, why does David feel so down? And we actually don't know for sure why. This event described in the title we're told about in just one verse in 2 Samuel 8 verse 13, and then the parallel account in uh, 2 Chronicles. And we're really only, we're not told about anything negative. We're just told that David had sent Joab, and then the guy under Joab was Abishai. You may remember reading that name, another kind of maybe a major or a colonel, whatever the term they used back in David's time. And so you had David as the king, you had Joab as one of his generals, you had Abishai under him, and then of course you had all the troops. And so uh, David had sent Joab and Abishai and the troops underneath to go fight the Edomites, and they had a great victory. In fact, Chronicles says that there were actually 18,000 total that were killed. So it must have been about 12,000 when Joab fought there in the Valley of Salt, and then including the men that Abishai killed, a total of 18,000. And of course, it wasn't just Joab and Abishai, it was the troops. So Joab didn't do this single-handedly, but David's men under their leadership had this great victory. So why the downer here? I mean, look at this. In verse 1, David says, Oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You've been displeased. He says then in verse 10, notice what he says there. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off, and you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? 
So somewhere in this victory of Joab connected with that, Dave or David had a big loss. And and we don't know exactly where that was. We're not told about it in Scripture. I think, my guess as to what happened, is that David had sent Joab and his men down to fight the Edomites, and that David went off to fight another battle with a portion of his men. And I think David may have experienced a big loss there. And maybe he had to retreat, maybe he had to run back to Jerusalem, we don't know, until Joab finished with the Edomites, returned back to join him, and then, of course, they finally had a victory. Because we know, in David's conquest of the land of Israel, it was all very victorious, at least what we're told of in the Scripture. And so, there must have been some defeat in there, and it just has David down. He feels broken and abandoned by God. And it may be that God had turned his wrath on the people, and that's why they lost that battle. And so David comes to God in repentance. He turns to God and asks God to renew their right relationship. So it begs the question for us, in our times, when we feel like God has abandoned us, when we experience those losses of life that leave us asking that question, God, where are you? What happened? Are you even here? Are you even helping? Have you abandoned me? And we know the answer is, in Christ, no, God has never abandoned us. So David sort of instructs us here how we can respond in those times. Number one, we turn to God for help. We turn to God for help. It's interesting to me because David feels as if God has abandoned him. And the temptation for us in those moments is to just be like, well, fine, then I'm turning my back on you too, right? If, if I'm experiencing God's wrath and, and I don't like what God is doing, do I really want to turn to God? Well, no, of course not. And yet David knows where else can he go? He must go to God. So in this difficult time, David turns to God and brings his request to the Lord. He pours out his heart. This is raw stuff. I mean, notice the, there are actually seven, you could almost call them accusations that David brings against God. They all begin with, the, in the New King James at least, they all begin with that phrase, you have. Notice them, starting in verse 1. You have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. And so he asks, restore us again. Number four, you have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its branches for it is shaking. And then in verse three, you have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Seven statements of what God has done to put David in this place of weakness and feeling abandoned and broken and lost. These are strong terms and yet... Interspersed in them, David is calling out to God for help. You see it there at the end of verse 1. Oh, restore us again. The word means David is asking God to, uh, to bring them back. In fact, it actually has the idea of turning. He wants God to, to face them again with his pleasure rather than his displeasure. In verse 2, he actually talks like the earth is shaking as a result of this defeat. And it certainly felt that way. Maybe God even used an earthquake in this defeat that David had experienced. We don't know. But David talks about the, the earth actually trembling, breaking in pieces. And so David 
cries out again at the end of verse 2, heal its breaches for it is shaking. The breaches are like a torn down place in a wall where the enemy can get through or cracks in the earth uh, where it's just torn apart. And David says, heal what has been broken. So he's turning to God for help in the midst of his trouble. Verse 3 continues these sort of accusations to God. You have shown your people hard things. If this was a a loss in battle, then the people have seen death. They've seen people uh, die in battle as a result of this loss. And so they've seen hard things. They've they've, They've been made to drink the wine of confusion. That word confusion means staggering. It means that what this cup that they've had to drink, this, this tragedy that has struck them, has caused confusion. It's caused them to stagger. Like, what is going on here? So this is what David is feeling as God has brought this loss to the people of Israel. And yet, he turns to God for help. Verse 1, restore us. Verse 2, heal our breaches. And as we come to verses 4 and 5, then we have a positive note. David makes another what sounds like an accusation, but he says, you have given a banner to those who fear you. Those who fear you. That's a term referring to the people of Israel, God's people. They're the ones who fear the Lord. And so David says, you've given us a banner. A banner was a rallying point for an army. It was sometimes decorated with a, you know, the seal of arms of that army or that nation or whatever. A banner was a reminder of who you are. And so for David, this was a reminder of who God's people are. They're God's people. That's their banner. They're God's chosen people. But there's more to this banner. In the next phrase in verse 4, he says that it, the banner, may be displayed because of your truth. You see, God's people are those to whom God had revealed himself with truth. God had given them his word. He'd given them his promises. And so the success and failure of Israel spoke to the very word of God. God had chosen them. God had loved them. God had given them His Word. And so this banner is God's truth, that they are God's people. They're a light in the darkness to show the world what God is like. So David's actually, I think, encouraged by this banner. And he's calling out to God, using that banner as a reminder of their need for God's help. We are your people. We display your truth. So help us in our time of need. And so verse 5 is then that final request for God's help. That your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. Did you catch the word beloved in there? Even though David feels broken down and abandoned, he remembers God's love. He knows that God's loving relationship with Israel has not changed. And though they may be experiencing the turned displeasure of God as a result of this loss, David knows that God's steadfast love has not been broken. God will still be faithful to Israel. And so that's why David turns to God for help in this time. Knows that he is God's beloved. He knows that God is going to help. And so he calls upon the Lord to save and to hear. Friends, in our times when we are discouraged, when it's the last thing we want to do, when we feel abandoned by God, that is exactly when we need to turn to Him. Look to Him for help. Call out to Him 
in our time of need. So last week, I experienced some computer issues. You've probably never had any computer issues, uh, but it happens from time to time. Something in your computer is not working right, and mine was very conveniently turning off random times. It would just kind of you know, lose power and shut off, which is great when you're in the middle of working on something. Um, it's exactly what you want to happen, right? So I'm being sarcastic, obviously. So I'm having these computer problems, and, and so naturally I check, and indeed my computer is still under a service plan. And so I can call the company who made the computer and get some help with that. But I know that that could mean long wait times on the phone, and that could mean difficult procedures I have to go through. And so I don't call the company at first. Where do I go? I go to YouTube, right? Where can I find you know, solutions to my problem? How can I fix my computer? And so I'm doing all these searches. And of course, while I'm searching, the computer shuts off and I have to turn it back on again and, and then get back to the website and look for more videos. You know, one simple phone call will clear all this up. So I keep searching and I try this and I try this. And so after hours of utter failure at uh, fixing my laptop, I decide, okay, fine. I'll call the computer company. And so I look up my service number, and I call them up, and I get on the phone, and I, you know, waited for maybe 15 minutes before a, a customer service representative helped me, and, and they began to assist me with my problem. And, you know, we did a remote connection and all of this, and within a few clicks, they had changed a few settings and fixed a few things and found a few corrupted files and said, okay, you should be good to go. Like, wow, that was, that was it? We're all done? He's like, yeah, it should be fine. If it happens again, let us know, and we'll, we'll search for another solutions, but you should be good. Wow. Thank you. I kind of left my, scratching my head a little bit, going, that was incredibly easy. If only I had called them in the first place, right? <laughs> Saved myself a few hours of trouble. I knew, I knew it was still under warranty, and, you know, the service company would help me, and they would be there for me, but, I, you know, I just, I'll do this on my own. I'll solve this my way, rather than turning to the ones who know what they're doing, who made the computer, who know how to fix these kinds of issues. And sure enough, they did, and they solved it with a few clicks, a few changes, and it was done. So, so often how we respond in our times of trouble to our God, how we don't want to like, we, we don't like what he's doing, we don't want to mess with talking to him, or it feels like I'm doing nothing if I just bow and pray to him. So I'll try a few solutions first. I think I got this. I don't, I don't know that I need to talk to him on this one. Sometimes it's because we so don't like what he's allowed or done, we're angry with him. And so we don't go to him. And yet I love David's heart here. In the midst of a loss of some kind, some military defeat, rather than being angry with God, he goes to God. He turns to God. He asks God for help. Why? Because he recognizes that God alone can do this. David, in Psalm 60, has an incredible view of God's sovereign rule. David knows that the ups and downs of his life are completely about God. Because God sits on the throne. The earth is his if there's shaking in the land, if the earth splits apart. Why is that? Because God sits on the throne. And that's why David turns to him. He knows that God rules. Where else could he go? Who else would he talk to? So, of course, he turns to the Lord. So in our times, when we, when we feel abandoned, when we feel that God has turned His back on us, we, remind our, we must remind ourselves, no, it is not true. Instead, we must go to Him. 
The question is, am I right with God? This was the question that was on David's mind, right? God, you are displeased with us, and that's why we've experienced this defeat. That's an important place to begin. Am I right with God? Am I under God's wrath, or am I forever under His grace? And that's the first question we need to answer today. Now, for David, God related to David through the Mosaic Covenant. And David could delay God's wrath, could cover God's wrath by offering animal sacrifices. And that's how the people of Israel maintained a right relationship with God through their history. But now, God has sent the once-for-all sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who does not need to be offered continually for our sins, but died in our place once for all, that any who trust in Jesus Christ, God's wrath is not just covered, it's paid for, it's done with, it's finished, because Jesus took it all. So friend, if you want to know whether you're right with God today, the question is, have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation? Are you trusting Jesus to pay for your sins as He did on the cross 2,000 years ago? And if so, then you, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, have become a child of God. If you haven't made Jesus your Savior, the payment for your sins, then you are still under God's wrath. There's two conditions a person can be in in life. Under God's wrath and not right with God or saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where are you today? Are you right with God? If you are right with God, then God will never, ever, ever turn, your back, turn His back on you. You are forever in His love and grace and mercy. The next question to ask ourselves then, am I facing the Lord? There are times in our sin that we can still say to our loving God, as His child, we can say to Him, no, I, I, I don't want to do things your way. I'm going to do things my way. And God has given us the means to turn back to Him. It's called repentance. It's this turning back to Him. Not for the cleansing of our sins, that was done at the cross, but for restoration of right relationship with God so that I'm not turned away from Him any longer, but I'm facing Him again saying, yes, Lord, whatever you have, I love you, I want to live for you. So it may be that you're there today. God's not turned His back on you. He's not angry with you because you're in Christ, but you need to turn back to Him. You need to turn to God for help. Know that He hasn't gone anywhere because of Jesus. No matter how angry you were with Him, no matter what you've done, He's still right there because you're covered in the blood of Christ. You're cleansed from your sin and now you have His righteousness. And so God's not gone anywhere. So turn to Him and ask Him for help in your time of trouble. We always have God's help because of Jesus. The gospel is our reminder. And this is so true of who our God is. Isaiah 55, 7 says this, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. 
Or Psalm 86.5 as just another example. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you. So friend, call upon the Lord. doesn't matter what you think is there between you and Him. This is what David knew would happen. That if he called upon God, God would be his help. And so he turned to the Lord in faith for help. Now this doesn't mean that Painful or difficult things won't happen in life. In fact, they will. But know that they come from God's love when you are in Christ, not God's anger. His love might allow something difficult in order to help you let go of an idol in your life. His love might allow some pain in order to grow your faith and to do eternal good for you. As God removes the deadly cancers of sin from our lives, He does so in love, even though we may feel the pain of His surgery along the way. For example, Sally had prayed and prayed that her parents' divorce wouldn't go through. She knew that's what God wanted, but having received the news that it was finalized, she was shocked and confused. Where was God? Why didn't he stop this? Was he even listening to her? She was tempted to throw into the towel and to be done with God altogether. But she remembered the Psalms. She could bring her pain to the Lord rather than running from him. She knew she didn't know what to say, and so she opened to Psalm 60 and began to use David's words to pour out her heart to God. In those difficult times when your life is shaken, when you're reeling in confusion, when you feel defeated and alone, turn to God anyway. He's in control. In Jesus, you are still His beloved, and His word is still true. Let truth be your bedrock in those times. Number two today, we see David remember God's promises. In verse 5, David has called upon the Lord for help in his time of needs. In fact, he actually ends in verse 5 and says, Hear me. And that word hear me includes not just listening, but actually answering as well. And so I think it's significant that in verse 6 we have God's answer. God has answered him. God gives him some promises here. Now, as your eyes just scan down through these promises, you'll notice a number of references to places and people groups. And maybe you're scratching your head. What are all these things? What do all these mean? Well, let's pause and remember a little Israel history here. So be brief. Don't worry. Okay. So God had promised the land to Abraham. Remember? We studied that a year or two ago. God called Abraham out of his land to a new land and said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. And Abraham actually walked the land and knew its borders and its limits. But God also told Abraham there'd be a, a period of time that you are in exile in a foreign land. And indeed, that happened. They were in exile in Egypt. God redeemed them out of Egypt. So Abraham actually did not get to fully dwell in the land. Moses brought the people toward the land, but not into the land. Joshua finally brought them into the land. And God used Joshua to bring conquest to the land so that God could finally give this land to his people. And so Joshua fought battles, different large cities through the land, and defeated these nations, and God gave the land to Israel. However, 
Sadly, the Israelites did not complete their conquest at that time. They did not drive out all the foreign nations. They did not reach the very borders that God had promised to them. So the conquest was never fully completed under Joshua. And God is using David to sort of continue and complete that conquest of the land. And so what God is doing here is He's reminding David of the promise all the way back to Joshua, all the way back to the patriarchs, all the way back to Abraham for this land. He's reminding David that this is God's land. In fact, the whole earth is the Lord and that Israel are God's people and so that God is faithful to his promises. Now notice that as we look down through them. First, he says, God has spoken in his holiness. God is right. He has done no wrong. He remains holy. First, he says, I will rejoice. And the word rejoice specifically means to like exalt in a victory. So it refers to God's being victorious, even though this defeat has happened. He first says, I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Guess where Abraham was when God promised the land to him. He was at Shechem. And so God is reminding David, look, this is my land. I've divided it out among the 12 tribes. I've promised to do this. So he says, I will divide Shechem, measure out the valley of Succoth. One of these was on the west of the Jordan River and one of these was on the east. Or reverse those if you're looking at me. West, east of the Jordan River, which cut down the middle. And so he's referring to both halves of the land, both sides of the Jordan River by Succoth and the valley, or excuse me, by Shechem and the valley of Succoth. Then he refers to Gilead and Manasseh. Gilead was east of the Jordan River. Manasseh was sort of on the Jordan River. Part of it was east and part of it was west. And so he's kind of moving across the land. So he's reminding them, they are mine. This land is mine. He calls Ephraim the helmet of his head or the protection of his head. So Ephraim is also often in the Old Testament, a summary for the northern tribes of Israel. Ephraim was one of the largest, and so it was located on the north and often referred to the northern half of Israel. And then he also mentions Judah, which, as you probably are guessing, often represented the southern half of Israel. So he's reminding them of the tribes of Israel. To the north, Ephraim is the protection, the helmet, the strong tribe which would guard Israel. To the south is Judah, where God's scepter is. What's a scepter do? A lawgiver, a ruler, a king. And indeed, Judah is the tribe from which both David and eventually Jesus would come. And we know that finally Jesus is God's ruler for Israel. So, God is reminding David, these are my promises. This is my nation. I will give you the land. I will do what I've said. But not only that, verse 8 now talks about their enemies. Moab is my wash pot. The wash pot was used to wash feet. It's a reminder of servitude, meaning Moab will serve God. God is victorious over Moab. Then he talks about Edom. Over Edom, I will cast my shoes. The the picture there is like a soldier coming back from battle, tossing the shoes to the side so the servant can clean them and prepare those shoes for the next battle. So Edom, again, will serve the Lord. And then finally, Philistia. This is maybe the most difficult phrase. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. I think what it's referring to is they will hear God shouting in triumph over them. 
I think that's the way we take that phrase. The Hebrew there is a little difficult. This passage is quoted in Psalm 108. And there, that phrase reads this way, Over Philistia I will triumph, says the Lord. So God is reminding them of His victory over the enemies of Israel. God is reminding David of His promises. He will follow through on what He said. And so we too, in our time of trouble, need to remember God's promises. There was a time in my life when I sort of ran some youth events on a regular basis, a youth conference every summer, and it took a lot of planning uh, to prepare the events and and make sure we had enough resources and everything. Uh, One of the years was held at an event center that was kind of a package deal. And, uh, and so when I booked this event center, I remember them talking me through all the things they provided, right? We have this for the kids to do, and this is included, and we even have food. We'll provide food for you, and we have, you know, plates and all the silverware and everything. And so there's really nothing for you to worry about. You just pay this fee up front, and we'll take care of everything for you, right? Oh, great. This sounds really good. This is a, this is a no-brainer. This is a win-win. And so I booked this event center, you know, months in advance. And, uh, and so then the youth event is approaching and it's getting closer and we're getting closer to this event happening. And so normally my procedure was to think through all the details, right? Are we going to have enough food? How many have signed up to come? Are we going to have enough cups and plates and napkins? Are we going to have enough things for them to do? Are there enough seats? And is the speaker ready? You know, all these little details that you have to take care of uh, turning to an event like this. And so I began doing this for this event as well, began thinking all these things through. And what I had forgotten was that the event center had said that they would take care of all of it. And so I began making arrangements, right? Make sure we have enough chairs and make sure we have the food that we need. And so I'm researching places we can get food and silverware and napkins and all of these things to make sure we have all the details taken care of for this event. And so it's getting closer and closer to the time of the event. And I don't remember exactly how it happened. Probably uh, Carrie reminded me or something like this. But she said to me, thankfully before the event, she said to me, I think they have all that covered. So here I found myself, you know, stressing over all these details. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? So I called them up. Now, now, you're going to have enough chairs. We're going to need this many chairs. Yep, yep, we're good. We got it. Okay, what about plates and napkins? Did you think of that? Yeah, yeah, we, we got it. We got plates and napkins. We have plenty. But will you have enough food? You know, I, I sort of think, you know, two and a half slices of pizza per person, and then you should be good. Is there, are you going to have enough food? Yeah, we got it. We, we're good. Okay. So we get to the events, and you can rest easy. It went great. They were fine. It was all taken care of. I had weeks and weeks of stress and planning and wondering and questioning and, you know, reserving cups and pizza here and all of this when... The place followed through on their word. They had it all taken care of. And the problem was, I had forgotten. I had forgotten. Now, you know, it's not always true that places will follow through when they tell you things like that. So sometimes it's good to follow up. But how often do we forget the promises of God? The one who always follows through, who never fails. So friends, many times in our dark times, we need to remember God's promises. This promise was one that particularly encouraged David because God was using David to complete this conquest of the land that ultimately belonged to God. Israel belonged to God. It was all his. And so David could trust the Lord. In Christ, God has given us many promises as well. 
Let me just mention one chapter of the Bible that's filled with a few. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for instance. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Or verse 28, all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. Or verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? Or verse 37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Or maybe verse 39, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's just one chapter of the Bible right there. Let's go over to Hebrews. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Or 1 Peter 5.10, which we looked at last week in the family service. But the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, will perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The God who's given us rich promises, and He will keep His word. Friend, if you're going through a difficult time, here's just a little encouragement for you. Ask God to help you remember His promises. Ask Him to bring them to life from His Word. And as you read Scripture, as you scour these pages for His promises, God will bring promises to mind that will help you in your difficult time. And then cling to that promise. Preach it to yourself when you wake up in the morning. Remind yourself of it as you have your your morning coffee. Look at it again as you prepare for lunch. Through the afternoon, cling to that promise from God. He never fails. Finally, in the last section of the psalm, David reminds us to rely on God alone. David, I think, has been encouraged by God's word here in verses 6 through 8. And so in verse 9, we're back to David. And he asks two rhetorical questions here. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Edom is again the enemy mentioned in the title of this psalm, and so that connects with what's going on here. What is this strong city? Many think it could be the city called Petra, which was in the the region of Edom, which is a city built into the rocks, and from a human perspective, basically impenetrable. And so the answer to these rhetorical questions is, who is going to lead me to Edom? Who is going to help me take this strong city? God alone is the answer. God David knows that because he recognizes in verse 10 that God was in control even over his defeats. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? See, David's rising to victory and David's falling in defeat both depend on the Lord. He relies on the Lord alone. He's not going back and saying, well, if our generals had come up with a better plan, if we came up with a better plan next time, then we'd get it. He's not looking at himself as king. If I had a bigger sword, maybe we would have won. No, David knows it's all about what God is doing. It's all about the Lord. He's the sovereign ruler of his life. And so in verses 11 and 12, he closes with a request for God's help. Give us help from God trouble. Friends, that is a wonderful prayer. If you've ever been in a difficult time, Lord, help me. 
Turn to the Lord and just ask for help. So often we don't know what to say. We don't know how to ask. We don't know what's going on. But just remember, the Lord is in control. Lord, please help me. He says in the end of verse 11, the help of man is useless. Now, David knew he needed troops. <laughs> David knew he needed an army. He, he, he needed Abishai. He needed Joab. God had provided all of that. He, he knew those things. What he's doing here is he's saying that those are not his savior. All those men could go out and fight, but if God's not in it, he would lose. It all depends on God. So David says, the help of man is useless. What we need is you, Lord. You, please help us. And in verse 12, he says, through God, we will do valiantly. The verse opens with a, kind of a beautiful part, or a pronoun. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Preposition. There's the word. Find the right P word eventually. Preposition. You could translate it through like the New King James does. It also means with or in. Okay, those are the three main uses of this preposition. The idea is that with God, in God, through God, right? Attached to God. This is when victory comes. Through God, David says, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. David was confident in God alone. Though he felt defeated and alone, he returned to God's promises and renewed his confidence in God. He knew that it wasn't a problem of man. It was God that they needed. The help of man is useless, as he says, and so he depends upon the Lord. On our recent vacation to uh, some national parks in the southwest part of the U.S., we were able to visit one called Sequoia National Park, which is the home of some giant sequoia trees. It's a sort of a type of pine tree, and they're unique because uh, they just grow and grow and grow, and the trunks get wider and wider and wider. They're very strange-looking trees. They're extremely tall, um, but the trunks are incredibly wide. In fact, the the widest one in the world, called the General Sherman tree, is 36 feet in diameter. 36 feet. Wrap your head around that for a moment. That's huge. 36 feet in diameter. So this tree is massive, and some estimate uh, that these giant sequoias have been there for over 2,000 years, maybe even 3,000 years. I don't know for sure. They don't have a drill bit long enough to drill to the core of the tree to find out how many uh, rings there are. So anyway, uh, they don't know for sure. It's an estimate. You may have also heard that recently fires have begun to approach that area. And, uh, and so these forest fires are coming near to these giant sequoia trees. So I was reading an article online about the, the things they're doing to try to protect the sequoia trees. And so they've set up like a, think of it like a sprinkler system for your yard. They set up a sprinkler system like around the park so that hopefully the fire won't cross into that region. Uh, you know, they've been clearing the flammable brush that might allow the fire to continue. And they're doing all these things to try to protect the tree. And I'm reading this article, and it, on the one hand, I'm thinking to myself, wow, it's really great. Of course, we want to protect these things. And then on the other hand, I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, they've, they've been around for two to 3,000 years. They've probably survived a few fires. Do we really need to be doing all this? And I think the answer is 
yes and yes. I think on the one hand, it's good to protect the trees, but there's something very interesting about the way God created these trees. Unlike just about any other tree that I know of, they have a special chemical in their bark called tannin. Tannin is fire-resistant. And so sequoia trees are fire-resistant. Now, they can burn down, but only the hottest, most intense fires actually damage the trees. In fact, the fires can actually be helpful to the trees. The fires clear out the other brush nearby that might compete for water and for growth. In fact, the pine cones of the sequoia trees sometimes don't release the seeds unless they're heated up to, you guessed it, fire temperatures. (laughs) So God has designed these unique trees to be able to survive fires. Isn't that interesting? And so on the one hand, you know, we're stressing out, oh no, the sequoia trees, save the sequoia trees, and kind of smiling to myself because I know God created them to be fire resistant. But at the same time, I don't think it's wrong to try to protect them. What's important is that in our efforts, we also rely on God. We know, we know that He's the one who made them. It's an illustration of what we do in, in human life. It's good for us to take precautions, to live by God's word, to act wisely, and so on and so forth, right? David took his army to battle. He didn't just show up by himself, right? So so we make preparations. We we do what is wise and what is right and what is good. But underneath all of that, most important beyond it all is that we rely on God. And we know that things are in His hands, that He's the Creator. He's the one who sustains us. He is the one who carries us through. He's the one who guarantees the victory. The help of man, in the end, is useless. And so, friends, are we relying on God alone? Even as His children, by faith in Jesus Christ, so often we rely on other things. We we turn elsewhere to try to solve our problems, forgetting that all that we really need is God and His provision for our help. James 1.17 reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So rely on Him. He's the one we need. For us, this often looks like prayer, actually expressing our dependence upon Him. This is one of our core values as a church, dependence upon God through prayer. We must acknowledge that God will do nothing here. Excuse me, let me reverse that. We will do nothing here apart from God. We need Him. And so we express our dependence upon Him through prayer. This is His work He's the one with power, not us. And so we depend on Him. We talk with Him. There's something difficult about prayer in our hard times. Have you ever noticed that? We want to just solve it. We want to just go to work. It's hard to stop and actually talk to the Lord. I encourage you just to express your dependence upon Him in prayer. Stay aware of what He is doing through the ups and downs of life. Everything is about Him. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Nothing is random. Nothing is pointless. Everything that happens in your life comes from His love and is being used for your good, sometimes to draw you closer to Him, sometimes to help you conquer sin, sometimes uh, to help you long more for eternity with Him. Sometimes just to give you joy and pleasure. 
The sovereign God is involved in every detail of your life. It's all about Him. Live with an awareness of His presence and work. And as you rely on Him, renew your confidence in God. His promises are sure. Keep turning to Him. He will never fail. As Jesus said to His disciples as He prepared them for His departure, I am the vine, Jesus said. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Keep depending on the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this encouraging passage. And as we think about these things together, we, we confess we are so quick not only to just try to rely on our own resources, rely on others and operate without you. We don't want to be that way. Sometimes we even, we even become angry with you because of what you, the sovereign God, has allowed. Oh, forgive us, Father. We turn again to you. We submit to your rule in our lives. We express our need for your help. Oh, help us and guide us and lead us. Show your victory in Christ through our lives. And through the ups and downs, may we rely on you alone. Help us, Father, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.